This is the fourth in a six-part series by Terry Virgo on the Book of Philippians. The talks were first given to a gathering of senior international leaders from the New Frontiers family. Terry has based them on Paul's apostolic relationship with the church in Philippi. The accompanying notes provide an outline to the series and also provide a number of quotations from helpful commentators. And we'll read from verse 19 of Philippians 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself shall be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I've sent him all the more eagerly, in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Therefore receive him in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be together here, spanning uh, continents, and yet with personal affection and real delight in one another. Thank you for friendships. We thank you for the gift and grace of our retaining fellowship and friendship in spite of long distances and long gaps in our opportunities to be together. Lord, we just uh, see here Paul, another uh, apostolic servant of yours with people stretched across nations and uh, longing for news and uh, living intentions and yet in joy and Lord we thank you for breaking out amongst us with such joy this morning and we thank you for majestic uh, passages from Isaiah that are so alive uh, in our generation Lord things that maybe previous generations even uh, had difficulty comprehending but Lord we can see Lord whether it's uh, Indians in Mexican mountain areas or Lord far-off people in the Caucasus or internally in India or peoples across the African continent and so on. God, we thank you that you are saying, Awake, awake, O Zion. And we thank you, you're giving us an understanding of what is the mountain and the city of God around the world. And we, we just receive it with such joy, Lord. And we thank you for the profound sense of expectation uh, in our hearts this morning as uh, your word came to us that what you are preparing secretly is going to break out soon in far greater power than we've ever seen. Lord, we receive your word. We thank you, Lord. It's like we're being secretly woven together in our mother's womb, ready for a wonderful coming forth of the church. And Lord, thank you for the permission you've given us, the privilege of being preparatory, of, Lord, sometimes breaking up the old way, getting it ready. And we thank you for the generation that comes behind us, our Timothys and uh, our young guys and girls that are going to suddenly outstrip us in terrific speed and faith. Lord, we are full of expectation that we will look on in wonder at the magnitude of what you will do and that the passages in Isaiah will not be forever there to mock us, but we will see it in all its splendor across the nations, Lord, that you will do something of vast, magnificent demonstration of the power and the glory of God so that huge multitudes will be saved and swept into the kingdom. God, we praise you. Thank you for speaking to us so powerfully in these prophetic words. And uh, thank you for the joy of singing your praise in another tongue and uh, delighting ourselves in God together. Lord, we do ask you to help us uh, in this passage of Scripture that it might 
come alive to us and be relevant to us. We may highlight what you want us to hear. And please give us revelation, Lord, Holy Spirit. We honor your presence with us. And we say, Lord, we need to learn from you. And we pray, please be our teacher right now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So following yesterday's rather rushed uh, effort to get through such a large piece of material, which did stand together um, with that sublime teaching about Jesus laying aside glory in order to take the place of a slave and then endure death even on the cross as a model uh, for us to ourselves work out our salvation with fear and trembling for God's at work in us. And so we are to be diligent in our relationships, to walk the humble path, to take the place like Jesus did. And then we, after that passage, get like a model or an example of Paul and his comrades who are living this lifestyle. They're living the lifestyle of slaves who put first the kingdom, whose priorities come second to the gospel. Their own personal preferences are way down the list because Jesus has captivated their hearts and here you've got this little model uh, of what God is after in Paul and his team. And so we're looking now at Paul, his team, their attitudes and actions in the light of Christ's example that we were looking at yesterday. And uh, they live lives uh, in the shadow of the cross, which had captivated and revolutionized them. Yet with personal love and mutual delight, human friendship and vulnerability. I think we get a wonderful insight in this period, in this passage, to see Paul's apostolic team, their values, the things that motivate them uh, in the rough and tumble of their uh, experience. So first of all, we're looking at Paul and Timothy, and then later we'll look at Paul and Epaphroditus. That's the way I've kind of broken up this passage. Paul, first of all, his submission to the Lord Jesus for the ordering of his affairs. So from the beginning, he says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy. Everything that he did, he wanted to be subject to the Lord's guidance. And uh, I immediately am reminded of Simon's word on the opening night of how the Apostle Paul had plans to go in one direction and then another direction. And yet he was submissive to the spirit that forbade him. And there's no demonstration or explanation, rather, of how that became plain to him, what was stopping him, but he had enough sensitivity that the Spirit of Jesus did not want him to go this way or that, and then the Macedonian call. And so that was the whole style of their operation. I want to send Timothy, I hope, in the Lord Jesus. This isn't just a guy sitting behind a desk directing people. I really want to know what does Jesus want. I hope in the Lord Jesus. It's all subject to Christ's overruling. And again, similar in verse 26, uh, 24, I trust in the Lord that I myself shall be coming. It's in the Lord again. It's wanting to be under the direction of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Lloyd-Jones says Paul is incapable of thinking apart from Christ. He doesn't arrive at any decision except in terms of Christ. It was Christ who controlled the whole of his life. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to decide whether or not he should send Timothy. And we must keep that attitude of mind again uh, while common sense has its place it must be a common sense which is ultimately subject to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ himself our every action and move must have a relationship to our central relationship to him dominated by him recognizing that he is actually in control and I believe that's going to be of great significance to us at this time when doors seem to be opening uh, extraordinary doors of opportunity. I'm reminded, even as I speak, of when I was first at Seaford, pastoring the church, and my old school uh, got in touch with me, Brighton and Hove Grammar School, where I had been a backslider in my teenage years, and they suddenly got in touch with me and said, will you come and teach one day a week on religious knowledge? And uh, it's going to become a sixth-form college, and in the future you can choose the curriculum it's speaking of the relevance of Christianity today to all these hundreds of sixth-form boys. And I thought, wow, what a door. What a door. And I got down to pray, and I felt God said to me, what have I called you to do? And um, I said, uh, 
pastor this church. And I said, Lord, thank you for this tremendous opening that's come in Brighton. It'll be a chance to put right all that was so wrong. My testimony was so dreadful. I can go back in there. And I just heard this again. What have I called you to do? And it gradually got into my thick head that God wasn't so excited about this open door <laughs> as I was. And in the end, and it was a battle, I mean, a real battle, that I had to say, I'm not meant to go. And I remember phoning Phil Vogel, who was working with Youth for Christ at the time, and I said, Phil, I can't go through. And he, he arranged it, and the door, somebody else went through that door. And so it's not just, as Samir's great testimony was, when the secular firm is offering you an open door, it's when open doors come. And we just need to know, is it God? And we must be very careful now, because God is opening doors all over the place. And uh, I've just put some down here, and uh, I'm aware of, even since Stonely, it's phenomenal. People want to talk about Stonely, I think, Stonely, that was ancient history. So, it, life is a blur. You know, Stonely, since then, it's this and this and this and this. Uh, I've, things just keep going quicker and quicker. And, you, you know, one is conscious of uh, uh, Malawi, Zambia, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the Philippines. These are all things sort of pressing in for our attention. And it wasn't so many months ago when uh, Ken and uh, uh, Bob spoke to us about New Zealand. And I remember being far from enthusiastic. So, oh, I don't know, maybe, and uh, don't think so. And they said, we're going anyway. And you felt, hey, what's God done? <laughs> God's done something in their spirit. And we stand back and say, this looks like God. Then you hear others saying, we feel Australia. They say, wow. And so, yeah, it's happening quick. Uh, yet we've just got to know, is it the Lord? Is it the Lord? Every time. And so we, we just need to have this attitude that Paul had, I hope in the Lord. Because if it's in the Lord Jesus, you can expect amazing things to happen. See, when it's not in the Lord, common sense may say, here's a strategic door. But if it's not in the Lord, you don't get what we were hearing about earlier, the extraordinary favor that's on it. It's when it's the Lord that the favor, he's co-working with us. You think, wow, how did this open? Well, it's the Lord did it. It's his time. It's his moment. And we must be sensitive to the timings of God because it happens different when we're in the timing of God. And so I believe Paul and his team were very much sensitive to that. It's got to be uh, our way too. So he is uh, very submissive to the Lord in the moving of his team. God help us to have similar attitudes. And even then, when his submission to the Lord was personally costly to Paul. Because he's sending Timothy and uh, Epaphroditus. This was very personally costly to Paul. He is ministering, uh, le releasing Epaphroditus who was there to minister to his need. It was very nice to have a guy around who's ministering to your need. And uh, we can look and think of our churches and there are certain guys there who make it possible for things to happen for you. And uh, so you're taking away from someone that helped Paul is not superfluous. He's one that affected Paul. His absence was going to affect Paul. And then to be followed by Timothy, who's his very special child in the Lord, as we'll see shortly. And so Paul, Matthias says, saw his Christian friends at Philippi as worthy of the best he had to give. He gave them Timothy, the man who was in a class by himself, and who seems to have occupied the central ground in Paul's affections in a way no other did. The same point comes out in Paul's willingness to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi. His own love and need for Epaphroditus is plain in verse 27. But the happiness of Epaphroditus himself and of the Philippians were overriding considerations. Now here you've got an example then of what Paul is saying earlier. Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus it's not that, as we said, it's, it's, it's as in the NIV to think of others better, but that their, their needs are more significant than yours. And that, here you get that exemplified in the Apostle Paul. So we may find God starts calling some of our nearest and dearest. You may be your true child. Uh, I remember when, and I'm certainly not the only family in this room that knows something of this, but I remember Wendy and I standing at London Heathrow uh, saying goodbye to Anna and finding it very difficult to move from that spot. Just thinking as she went through, oh gosh. And uh, you know, the excitement of the wedding the day before and sort of a buzz and you keep going and you suddenly look through that gate and we just stood there for ages looking through that gate. 
and uh, God will call us sometimes to release our dearest and our best in the, in the family. And uh, there are some who have struggled with that. And it's not to say it isn't a struggle, but there's the releasing of our dearest and our best. And some of us are going to find, you talk nations, 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 they're going to listen to you. I think, oh, blow, no, it didn't mean you. <laughs> and you suddenly find, wow, it's in their hearts. The nations are in their hearts. And so the dearest begin to go. Or your particular disciple, the one you especially thought, he's the guy we can build this on for years. And then he says, actually, I'm off. What? No, 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 not you. Yeah, everyone else goes, not you, because <laughs> you're in my plans for here. He says, oh, no, God's told me. And you think, oh, blow, we've invested all this energy in you. And so, again, it's, gonna, it's your particular disciple, or maybe your personal confidant, the one you, you can uniquely share your heart with. And that's not always everybody. And you think, God, what would I do without him or without her? And I know that happens for some of us, and I know wives. Have, I've heard the comeback for some. I know, for, uh, I know it's been true for Sue Brooks in Brighton that some of her dearest friends, the wives of key people like Al Shaw and other key guys have gone off, and her dearest buddies all went. And that's been very painful and hard for them uh, to see that happen. And uh, so it's not just the guys in the discipling, it's close friends, dear ones, that you can really share your heart with, maybe your kids the same age as theirs, and all those things that bond you together. And that willingness to say, okay, I take my hands off, we're not going to try and manipulate this, we're not going to cling to this. And uh, the one maybe that uh, you feel you need at the moment, uh, Epaphroditus, he said he ministered to my needs, and I, I need him. And then God's saying, now go. So this, these, these are Paul's attitudes, submission to the Lord when personally costly. And uh, we will only be genuinely apostolic when we live vulnerable to that. You vulnerable to that? So you think, no, oh, I want to build something here. Well, we've got to have the faith that you can give and it will be given to you. You say, all right, we release this guy. And I can only say, I've had the joy of seeing things like that again and again. That, uh, you know, we release an Al Shaw and you suddenly get a Tom Eaton. You release this one and you get another one comes through. Give. It's got to be with faith. I know that's a verse about money, really. I guess it is give and it's given to you. But we've got to believe. You give away. You think, wow, he has done such a good work. Can the work still go without him? And then, wow, where did this guy come from? As you give away, so others come through. So we've got to have that. Uh, generous attitude, that willingness to release people. Uh, we will not be apostolic if we don't get that in our system. And then uh, secondly, he begins to talk about, or at least thirdly, into about Timothy's genuine care. We're just staying with Timothy for a while. It's, it's a very difficult passage to unravel, so we'll go along this line. Timothy, he speaks about his genuine care. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. He is genuinely concerned. There's nothing artificial about Timothy. He has uh, concern. The word actually is the same as Paul's in 2 Corinthians 11:28. My care for all the churches that comes on me daily. He says Timothy's got the same. He's got your care. It's on him. Like father, like son. He cares for the churches and it's genuine. And uh, it's the same word, actually, that's used in Luke 10.41 about Martha. You're careful for many things. Interesting, eh? And uh, that burden uh, that came on Paul for the churches, Timothy knew something about that. Then you come to this very strange verse, really, uh, difficult verse, where he contrasts, almost sounds like a, some peak, really, uh, in verse 21. They all seek their own interests, not those of... Christ Jesus, and uh, it's a very, very difficult uh, verse to look at. Um, he is, sadly, going to contrast other people with Timothy. And I've, I've looked at many commentaries, and uh, nobody's got much light. <laughs> uh, they all say it cannot be that he's saying that all his other workers are hopeless. Um, it cannot mean. It's, it's quite easy to say what it cannot mean. It's not so easy to know what it does mean. Uh, well, who is Paul comparing Timothy with? 
in his last chapter, he says, all the brothers who are with, with me send you greetings. And you don't feel he's saying, mind you, they're a worthless lot. You, you don't really feel that's Paul's heart. Um, but he's obviously uh, seeing in Timothy such a magnificent example of the Christ-like spirit. Where his mind goes when he's comparing him with others, it's not easy to see. Let me just, just quote you, Vincent. Uh, it's not in your notes, but I'll just read it. Uh, Mr. Vincent says, it's, It is possible to speculate unceasingly about the meaning of Paul's startling statement here. But without more information, a satisfactory explanation seems impossible. <laughs> it's hard to know, all right? So that's a helpful commentary, isn't it? You'll, you'll find if you look at all the different countries, we've all got different ideas, but uh, I, I can't see how, how easy it is to get around that. Maybe it is possible to look at someone like Demas, who is mentioned in some of the prison epistles uh, as a co-laborer, and then we read in 1 Timothy, or at least 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas has left me having loved this present world. And uh, so we've got to see maybe the vulnerability of men that were on the road, We've talked before that we're not looking for perfection before we get people in the work. We've talked uh, uh, earlier in our time together about pushing people through, and certainly the Lord Jesus had people with him, even in the twelve, who towards the end are still angling for positions. Peter and uh, uh, not John and James are angling, getting mother. What about a place for my boys at your right hand and left? They're, exact, they're not exactly whole, mature people yet. But they're in the apostolic band. And somehow it seems to me apostles handle vulnerability in others. And I think we've got to learn that. That we don't only work with totally perfect people. We work with vulnerable people. And there's a, there is a vulnerability that makes you in some pain sometimes. And uh, I know that Paul maybe was a, a tough guy to work with. He was happy for John Mark to not come anymore, thank you. Barnabas said, let's take John Mark. He says, no, he failed last time. And maybe in Paul we do see something of that high ideal. I always think of that story where, uh, where it says in Romans, oh, the goodness and the severity of God. It's the mystery. Oh, the goodness and the severity. And uh, I think of Paul and Barnabas as regards their attitude to John Mark. That in, in Barnabas, if you like, oh, the goodness. He, John Mark, Barnabas stood with John Mark. Uh, Paul said, no, he put his hand to the plow and looked back. That is not worthy. And the Bible gives you room for both because of the goodness and the severity. And you see them personified in Paul's rigorous commitment. And Barnabas, man of encouragement, saying, no, I'm going to stay with John Mark. I reckon he can make it. And then you get that wonderful thing, don't you, later when Paul says... Uh, bring John Mark, he's very profitable. And you feel, well done, Barnabas. And, uh, but, you know, there are, sh there are shocking times. And I know for myself last year, I think it was last year, we were working through Mark's Gospel at home and uh, came to that verse when Jesus says, how long do I have to put up with you? And I've never looked closely at that verse before. And I, I kind of thought, wait a minute, what's that? Is that the proof that Jesus was, uh, had bad days sometimes? You know? <laughs> so Jesus got out of bed the wrong side this morning. How long did I have to put up with you? Oh, sorry, shouldn't have. No, no, he never said, oh, sorry, it was true. He never said anything that wasn't true. And so sometimes in the scripture you get these jolting, wow, what does he think of us? He thinks you're unbelieving, slow people. And how long do I have to put up with you? And that's, that's perfection. That's Jesus. Didn't say, sorry about that this morning, Lord. Sorry, Father. I shouldn't have really said that. Now, that was reality. And I know I worked on that text and preached on that text uh, two or three times. It really burned into my soul. And so we've got to be aware that sometimes assessments come that scare the life out of you. And that one day we will face the God who does the real assessment. And so it's a difficult passage when Paul says this. They're all, they're all seeking their own it's a hard verse, but God help us, uh, that the searchlight will come on every one of us one day. And assessments won't always be, well, he meant well. Pity he loved his own flesh more. No, no, hey. They, they're just interested in their own things. And so, a difficult verse. 
and we press on. I've spent longer on it now than most of the commentators do. <laughs> they skip over it pretty quick. But Timothy has had proven worth. And uh, Paul likes that word proven. It's uh, seven times in the New Testament. It's always Paul who uses it. It, it means tested, put to the test, and, and won the battle, if you like. Proven. His proven worth. And uh, it was developed in the closest possible relationship with Paul, like a father with a son. And uh, the word that's used is technon, not huios. Huios has to do with status. Now we're sons. That's to do with status before God. Technos had to do with relationship. It, tends, it speaks of tenderness, father with a son, rather than status of sonship. It's a very tender phrase. He worked like a father uh, with a son. It's the sort of thing that would have been uh, part of uh, their society, uh, like a man working alongside his son in a kind of apprenticeship thing, learning the family business. Maybe like Jesus worked with Joseph in the carpenter's home. That sort of working alongside. And the actual word for work is made up of the word doulos, uh, the word for slave. Co-slaving with me. Uh, that's really what he's saying. Co-slaving with me. And uh, it's a reminder of that greeting. Remember he says at the beginning, uh, from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. And then of course in Philippians 2, Jesus who took the form of a slave. And they said, you know, Timothy, how he co-slaves with me, like a father working with his son. And it's probably the meaning is with him rather than for him. And uh, uh, the NIV is a better translation. As a son, yes, rare, with his uh, father, he's worked with me. And that, that, that text is clearer than the NASB. It's, it's working with him, alongside him, uh, in a training context working alongside the father so that's Paul he says his proven worth is there we've looked at this kind of teaching before from 1 Corinthians and chapter 4 and I don't think to go over that again but just to emphasize and mention uh, Paul's way of working father son is something we must just strive for more and more rather than uh, simply in at the desk in the lecture hall we're looking for Father, Son. That's how we'll build. That's how we can span nations. That's the way God worked. Uh, as Paul says in, Tim, uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, my dear sons, my dear children, I am sending to you my faithful son uh, who's been tested. And really that's what God did in redemption. He sent his faithful son. He uh, didn't just send words or angels. He sent a faithful son. And that's the way we're going to build around the nations when sons are faithful to their father. If that was when that, that is broken, and that's what was tested in the wilderness, Satan trying to drive a wedge between this faithful son and his father. If you're the son of God, do this. Be independent. Do your own thing. Why, are, why bother waiting? Do it your way. And every one of us we will face that temptation sometime. Well, why bother to do it the way he's told me to do it? I can do this. And we miss that, that genius of the whole thing of being a family. We say, no, I'll do it my way. And then the enemy can begin to drive a wedge through. And it ceases to be a family. It ceases to have what God's after. So it's, it's absolutely fundamental. We were talking, weren't we, yesterday about being a family on a mission. And it's a good phrase. I'm a little scared of family church because it sounds so cozy. And so I'm a bit scared of family of churches because it can sound cozy. Family of churches on a mission begins to get nearer what we're talking about but family is crucial being a people who are built together with loving relationships and that's what I want people to notice when they come in and I think they do I think they see it on even like stonely platforms when we are totally unaware we just get on with it and then people comment to you you guys together you say yeah oh it's amazing you think yeah I suppose it is but we you know we love it we love our relationships and we've got to keep working at that like a son then we move on to uh, Paul and Epaphroditus. And here we see different words being used. My brother, all right? Epaphroditus, my brother. And again, I think it's something we can take so much for granted. But just think about it a bit. This is the Pharisee Paul. I mean, Hebrew of Hebrews. Who regards Gentiles, or would have done, as dogs. 
and a guy with the name Epaphroditus, which means blessed by Aphrodite, a very questionable <laughs> Roman god <laughs> with a very shady kind of background and what, he ref what that goddess reflects is a bit nasty. He said, my, my brother, you know, Epaphroditus, good grief, can you at least change your name? <laughs> I mean, you think about that. If you think of a Hebrew of Hebrews and his Jewish background, that name must have stunk in his nostrils. His name, it means blessed by a false god. That's his name. You might say, well, you want to join our church, would you please change your name? You know, change your hair as well and your clothes. And change a few of those Gentile things. Come on. And Paul, Paul doesn't say, change your name, just as my brother. It's a phenomenal thing. It's something we can miss, really. But it does mean blessed by this god of shadiness. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, it's interesting, my, my brother, this Gentile dog, that's what God's doing around the world. He's joining people who would find other races, especially the Jewish uh, commitment to their exclusive elite background, and, and always saying that the foreign gods, I mean, this is, what the, this is what they expected the Messiah to do, crush these nations with their false gods. And of course, Paul loves that in Thessalonians. You turn from dumb idols to serve the living God, and yet he can embrace Epaphroditus. So yeah, come on, brother. It's wonderful what God can do in embracing in people whose background is so incredibly different. And then to see the love that's among them, again, it's an insight. It's important to notice that uh, although we're confident of God's sovereignty in all things, and we're told to be anxious for nothing, this doesn't turn us into unfeeling and cold people. And this is what comes out in the text. It says, uh, verse um, 27, or verse 26, you heard that he was sick. And then verse 27, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, this is interesting from the guy who's just said, to die is gain. You know, he says that, I'd rather die. You know, if I had the choice, let's die. I go and be with Christ. Woohoo! And, uh, and yet here he's saying, if my brother had died, that would have been sorrow upon sorrow. And God spared me from it. And we just need to be careful here, lest we should drift into something that is unreal. That, you know, what's wrong with these Christians at this funeral? They're crying. Come on. It's gain. It's all gain. Hallelujah. It's gain. And what are you crying for? Let's have no tears at Christian funerals. No, no, we've got to understand this. That we are uh, to be in a real world of pain and suffering and loss. Although we know the wonder that this is gain. That we go to see the Lord. And here we see Paul in the same epistle. Paul proclaimed that to die is gain. His preference would be to depart. But when his dear brother Epaphroditus was raised up. Paul sees this as God having mercy on him, lest Paul should have sorrow upon sorrow. And so, though we hold great truths about life and death, it does not rob us of feeling. And uh, I must confess, we had a funeral at home just a few weeks ago, and it was one of the most moving funerals I've been in. And uh, uh, everybody was in tears. I mean, it was deeply, deeply moving. And I was just reminded of Jesus at Lazarus's tomb when it happened. I'm sitting there crying, and I thought, well, she died so well. And uh, she had her kids around her and all the rest of it. Uh, and, you know, it was a wonderful death. You, you know, we could sing, but, but it was appropriate also to weep. And I was reminded Jesus died at Lazarus's grave, knowing I'm going to raise him up in a minute. And it's just the ugliness an inappropriateness of death. Death is an inappropriate thing. It has invaded God's beautiful creation. And it is an ugly enemy. And it's not inappropriate to weep uh, at those times. And to, it would be very inappropriate for us to become stiff and say, oh no, no, no. Now sometimes I am sure at funerals there comes an incredible wave of celebration. I don't despise that. That it may well be the Holy Spirit just sets you free. And you think, wow, you've never seen a funeral like it. I've never seen such rejoicing. I have also witnessed that. But all I'm saying is let's not get kind of stuck. And say, no, I'm not allowed to feel. No, we don't grieve as others who have no hope. But we do grieve 
And Paul is very, I love this little passage. I love these passages and it's extraordinary how he can go from this high doctrine that we were looking at yesterday about Christ in the form of God and all the theology that's wrapped up in that down to things like this. My brother nearly died, but God saved him. I'm so glad. And uh, I love this Lloyd-Jones quote. Here is a man who says to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. A man who was ready to sacrifice everything for the sake of Christ. Yet who says, this dear brother of mine was desperately ill. I thought he was going to die. But God not only had mercy upon him, he had mercy on me too. To spare me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. He would have felt it grievously. It would have hurt him. It would have, he would have known that it was what it was to feel temporary sense of desolation. Let me emphasize this doctrine once more. The Christian is never meant to be unnatural. Uh, wonderful insight. And I thank God for Lloyd-Jones's uh, ability to present that to us so well. So let's be aware, uh, be aware of the danger of what I put here, cold automatic Christianity. There are many enigmas. Now that's not to make us back off truth. There are many enigmas. Paul was used mightily in healing, but his brother Epaphroditus was so sick to the point of death. God had mercy on him. Now maybe it was through Paul's prayers, but it would be, appear to be a difficult season of emotional turmoil where death was a possibility. And I just want us to get that mixture right, if you like, as a movement. This is a very difficult area and uh, I thank God recently for exposure to a man of such um, explosive faith as Ram Babu, who's very black and white about these issues. And it's good for us to be exposed to his clarity. But it's like, I have no other questions. This is the only thing to say. <laughs> and uh, the part you deal with the pastoral things, I'm on to the next place. And, uh, but we have to live with tensions. I don't want to in order to cope, water down the message of the gospel of grace and the power to heal. And I think this is the danger of evangelicalism, that we water things down because they're uncomfortable to live with. The tensions are uncomfortable, so we water it down. I would rather live with exposure to the, the absolute black and white, Jesus can heal. Let's live with it. At the same time, be aware, as Paul must have been, that sometimes there are huge enigmas. And we, and we don't just say, well, it's your lack of faith, your lack of faith. You should be walking in divine health. Because there's no such expression in the Bible as divine health. That, but you'll find that in the books. You know, Timothy was frequently sick. He obviously hadn't been to the divine health lectures. <laughs> he was frequently sick. I says, no, he may have been frequently healed, praise the Lord. But he was frequently sick. And so we must be careful of wrong statements, overstatements. But I want to be equally careful of the watering down that leaves us with nothing. And so we do want a robust statement about God's power to heal. But we don't want the unreality that says Epaphrodite is sick. No, no, he wasn't sick. No, 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 he's all right. He's not really sick. It's just the symptoms. He's just... We, 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 we cannot live with that. The Apostle Paul was much more honest. He nearly died, and if he had died, it would have broken my heart. It, I mean, you, some, some books you think, Paul, what? Obviously, Paul didn't understand some verses or something. Now, it's, very, it's, it's very important. But, but I would say, let's beware the danger of the mental laziness and spiritual laziness that says, this is a blur, who knows? I feel we need the courage and I get provoked when I hear someone like a Ram Babu. I mean, he's absolutely scary in his black and white commitment. And yet we cannot lose these kind of verses. And so we say, God, help us, help us uh, to get this right. And I love, as I say, what Lloyd-Jones said earlier about we mustn't lose uh, that, that context, that vulnerability context, nor must we lose the promises of the scripture. Uh, so that to me, it seems to me that's a little insight to where Paul lived. So he's saying, he's my brother. Therefore, I love him. And the thought of losing him was very serious. Emotional turmoil where death was a possibility. And he also calls him my fellow worker. He was a worker who came close to death for the work of Christ. It was no holiday. Notice um, the serving the Lord. 
You know, sometimes people get hold of a grace message and they say, come on, get more laid back. No, we work hard. Paul says, his grace to me was not in vain. I worked harder than any of them. So let's not be ashamed of being hard workers. Let's not be ashamed and say, oh, these guys aren't into grace. No, no, we're into grace. That's why we work hard. And uh, Paul, that's what Paul says. So we, we need not to be afraid of hard work. We're, we're going to be fellow workers. We're going to work hard. And Paul often refers to others as his fellow workers. And I've just also made this reference. He doesn't pull rank, as we touched on in an earlier session. Sometimes when there's an issue at stake, he will argue strongly for his authority as an apostle. Paul, an apostle from God, by the will of God, you know, he's, he's really loading it on. Why? He's got to sort out some theology in this church or some practice. And so sometimes he really lays it on heavy that he is the man. And then, but often, he's just my fellow, I'm a fellow worker. We're, I'm alongside. We just work together. And uh, you'll find he loves that phrase. And I've just listed a few places where he, he does that elsewhere with Priscilla and Aquila, Urbanus, Timothy, etc. He calls them fellow workers. We work together. And so we're not conscious of hierarchy. And again, sometimes people have commented on that when they've come amongst us. They said, wow, it's amazing. You just seem to be friends. There's no, no, there's no sense of um, people taking a stance on the, who they are. And so we want to get that attitude and atmosphere that was in the early church. So... Epaphroditus, so it's misspelling there, not Epaphras. Epaphroditus and all similar co-workers, I'm sure Epaphras is as well, uh, are to be held in high regard. See what he says in verse 29. Therefore receive him in the Lord with all joy. Hold men like him in high regard. So Paul commending his co-laborers, and that's part of our responsibility and calling, to commend our co-workers to the churches they serve. Uh, we don't send them and say, I'm sorry I can't come. This guy will come. I know he's not up to much. I'll get there sometime. But no, no. He's a, receive him well. With, give him high regard. That's part of our task. Uh, that we, we commend people uh, to others. And uh, God help us to do that more and more. Fellow workers. And my fellow soldier. Just to, again, remember that we don't just work. We have to fight. And uh, one always remembers, at least I always remember, Nehemiah, that he would happily have worked with just uh, a trowel. I mean, he would have been happy to be a trowel man. He wanted to get the city up. But he had to be a sword and a trowel. Because if you try and build a city, you're going to be in a battle. I will build my house. The gates of hell will not prevail. And there's going to be, once you start building, you have to fight. And so we are co-workers and fellow soldiers you're going to be in a fight and uh, in Epaphroditus Paul has an excellent example of one fulfilling the exhortation he's just given to the Philippians striving together you know we said yesterday about being like in a, a rugby scrum uh, working together he's a co-worker he's a co-fighter that's how he's been with me and then uh, last of all uh, your messenger uh, and, my, and minister to my need. One from the church at Philippi, bringing their gift to Paul, and having the privileges of fighting alongside the great apostle for a season. Now, I think that's something, again, we want to be very aware of. This guy is actually bringing a financial gift. We'll come to that in our last session. Uh, he eventually arrives at that, saying, you know, thanks for the gift. But he's just come bringing a gift. But as a result, he was alongside the great apostle for a season. He's a messenger. He's, he calls him an apostle, actually. The Greek word is an apostle. Your messenger to me, your apostle. And he honors and esteems him. And for a season, this guy who's just come from one of the churches co-labors with Paul for a season. Then he's sick as he's serving him in this way. And he's also ministering to Paul's need. Now, to me, I believe that mobility factor, which God is really impressing on us more and more, is a very important thing. A young guy gets the chance to be alongside this great <laughs> apostle Paul. And uh, we need to make more and more space for that because that's going to be part of Epaphroditus coming into some more that God has for him. He's going to be a guy of some significance later. And just being alongside Paul for a season is going to be very important to him. And it may well be, and we may have time to discuss this later, but 
it, it may not, we may have to learn much more. I know for myself, probably my roots being out of, you know, preaching and meetings and, and so on, we've got to learn more the value of being alongside. And uh, uh, what's that phrase? Someone said, I can't remember which context it was, a small cell or somewhere. This guy said he was praying and he said to God, he said, pray. How do you pray? Well, you just talk to God. So what do you say to God? Well, just talk to him. So next time he saw him, he said, well, have you prayed? He said, yeah, I talked to God. So what did you say? I said, hi, God. He said, what have you been doing? And so he said, he said God said to me, oh, I've been hanging out with some people. <laughs> That's quite great, isn't it? So, so that was the answer God told him. I, I've been hanging out with some people. So he said, That's cool. That's cool, he said. God hangs out with people. And, uh, <laughs> and I think we may have to learn to hang out with some people. And just make time. But he's, he's co-laboring, he's brought alongside the apostle. And in that very context, he's being exposed to the values of the man that are coming out of his pores. He hardly realizes, perhaps, that things are coming out of him. The apostle there, and this guy is uh, alongside him. And so we need to know flexibility and mobility in church life. Uh, and uh, we need to see the implications for the messenger. Uh, we must note it and emulate it. Epaphroditus was a man with his heart torn in two directions. Honored to serve Paul, he heard that his home church had learned of his sickness and was distressed as a result, longing for them. He knew the tension of feeling uh, the stretch between two contexts. Now again, we're going to feel that more and more. And uh, we're all going to feel some of that exposure. And you're going to ask, find guys asking questions. You must be asking them already. And not only the husbands, but the wives. Where do I fit now then? Where do I belong then? Where do I give my energies then? And these men lived with that kind of tension. And we've got to uh, learn to handle that wisely. We've got to know there are seasons and just to say, I feel too, particularly for wives, there are seasons with children, there are times of priority that's been reflected even uh, during this conference where getting away and so on, there are certain, you've got to keep weighing them. What I, we, we saw in the earlier session that we choose what is excellent. And we said it last time, we don't put out rules and jump through hoops. You say, no, I want you to have love with knowledge, discernment, that you choose what is excellent. And here's one of those cases. That Epaphras has got to do that. I've got to choose the excellent. I've got, to, I've got to weigh this against that. It's not legalism. It isn't there's the rule book. No, you have to weigh it. You have to be flooded with love. There's your motivational force. With wisdom, insight, you choose the excellent. Amen. Right, and we arrive with peace at that. But we're going to have, like Epaphroditus, had to make choices now. Paul's in need. He's not well. The church, the ch at least Paul's in need. Epaphroditus has not been well. The church has heard... And so he's a bit torn. And we're going to find that. We'll be torn sometimes. But Paul feels right now it's time for him to go back. And uh, as we said at the very beginning, Paul was not governed selfishly. He didn't say, no, listen, no, forget them. I'm the apostle. I need you. No, he said, come on, you need to go. And there was that, that Jesus-like attitude. Have this mind in you. That is in Christ Jesus, who looked to other people's needs as greater than himself. So that spirit has got to pervade who we are together. And so uh, it's important for us to see that. Uh, Paul was motivated by these mutual anxieties and therefore sent him eagerly so that when they see you, when you see him again, you can rejoice. There's that note of rejoicing that just keeps bubbling up all through the epistle. This whole passage gives us a beautiful insight into Paul's world. He and his dear friends together on world mission this passage, it should be noted, follows straight after the breathtaking theology of chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, which often stands alone in theological tomes being dissected and argued about. Paul had friends, fellow laborers, sons in the Lord, brothers who risked their lives in direct response to Christ, who laid down everything for them. Gordon Fee says, a passage like this ought to serve as a constant reminder to all of us, scholar, pastor, student of the Bible, that the New Testament was written in the context of real people in a very real world. Biblical texts are too often the scholar's playground and the believer's rule book. 
without adequate appreciation for the truly human nature of these texts. Texts written by one whose speech was ever informed by his theology, but who expressed that theology in a very personal and, at a very personal and practical level. Paul lived as a believer in a world surrounded by friends, that those friends brought him joy, and that the untimely death of such friends would have been for him immeasurable grief. Amen. Let's just pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us how to get into the atmosphere of the New Testament, overshadowed by the magnitude of the cross, not in some sentimental way, but affecting choices, really getting that mindset that was in Christ Jesus. We thank you for these, this band of friends, uh, personal dear friends who turn the world upside down. And God, we just again say to you, we've no appetite to get into institutionalism. We, we hate it really, Lord. And we love friendship. And we believe you love it. And we ask you, God, help us. And we pray, give us that uh, moral courage to live with uh, complexities and difficult choices. And Lord, we want to learn Paul's prayer at the beginning, uh, Lord, that, that we choose the excellent, informed uh, by the wisdom God provides and, Lord, motivated by your love abounding in us more and more. And so, Father, we, we just pray for one another and we ask you, God, help us in the teams we form. We think of those that uh, labor with us back in different nations. They may know our love for them, our esteem for them. We pray develop our father-son relationships much stronger and our co-brother relationships, our apprenticing context where father and son work together. Oh, help us in it, Lord Jesus. Inspire us, motivate us. Give us grace where we do feel the tension and the tug in two different ways and really feel the pain of, uh, Lord, having to leave people to do other things. And we pray also, God, for willingness to let people go and to release them to the broader thing that you've put in their heart. So, Lord, we just commit to you these uh, words we pray. Keep on doing us good through your truth. Keep blessing this day to us, we pray. Amen. This concludes the fourth part of this six-part series. For more information on New Frontiers resources, visit the website on www.newfrontiers.xtn.org.